Let's keep going through the story of Nehemiah. We're going to look at chapter 4 this morning. So uh, find chapter 4. And while you are getting there, I'll remind you of what we talked about last week. We saw one big truth in chapter 3, and this is it. That when God's diverse people work together in unity, the kingdom is built and the king is lifted high. We talked about the fact that there's diversity in the body, that we're all different. We have different strengths, we have different talents, we have different abilities, and that's a good thing. And diversity can be one of our greatest strengths, but it can only be a strength when we're all working together for the same thing. And in chapter 3, we saw this picture of people with all different backgrounds and skills and abilities standing side by side next to one another, all working together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And and we just reflected on what that looks like for us. But today in chapter 4, we're going to kind of echo back to one of our points that we talked about two weeks ago. I told you that there were three things that, that we can count on when God's plan starts to come together with his people. And one of those things we said was that we can be sure that opposition will come. Opposition is inevitable. Whenever God gathers his people and they begin to move, we can know that there's going to be opposition. So in chapter 4, we're going to begin to see a more detailed picture of the kind of opposition that Nehemiah and the people of God faced as they continued toward rebuilding the wall. And so what I want us to do in in the first half of chapter 4 this morning is to look at a couple of things. First, the nature of the opposition. What, What kind of opposition came against Nehemiah and the people? And then second, how did Nehemiah respond to it? And, and, and to measure ourselves against that. So um, let's jump right into chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they're building, he would break down their stone wall. Chapter 4 begins with the enemies of Israel. Sanballat and Tobiah have already been mentioned. They were mentioned in chapter 2. And I want you to see the difference in chapter 2 when Sanballat heard that there were plans to rebuild the wall. Chapter 2 says that he was greatly displeased. So that means he was ticked off. He wasn't happy. He was greatly annoyed. But something different is in chapter 4. It says... Like He reacted one way when he heard that there were plans to rebuild, but then later when he heard that they were actually rebuilding, that stuff was happening and the walls were going up, there's a different word in chapter 4. It says he was furious. That's like uh, that cartoon picture of the character when his face turns red and steam comes out of his ears and that kind of stuff. That's, that's the picture here. Like furious to the point of wanting to kill somebody. And so plans provoked one type of opposition, 
But actions provoked another kind of opposition. And I told you that before. There's one level of opposition we'll face just during the planning of things. But when we step forward and start doing stuff and putting bricks on bricks, there's a whole nother level of opposition that's going to come. And this is what we see in chapter 4. And there are two kinds of opposition um, that we see coming against Nehemiah in chapter 4. And so I want, I want us to talk about both of those. The first kind of opposition that we can know is inevitable for us if we remain faithful to what God is telling us to do is opposition by ridicule. That means that they started running their mouth. They started talking. And their anger produced a mocking of Nehemiah and the people. And when you read all of the things that Sanballat and Tobiah say about Nehemiah and the people, I kind of broke it down into three things. First, he calls them weak. What are these pathetic Jews doing? That word pathetic literally means feeble, powerless, weak. He, he says they're weak. How can they restore this by themselves? Number two, he says they're foolish. Can they even restore it by themselves? Will they ever finish it? How do they think they can bring life back to these stones and burnt rubble that's everywhere? He basically calls them fools. But you're, you guys are not even, you're not just weak, but you're stupid to think that you could even do this. It's ridiculous. So they're weak and they're foolish. And then Tobiah, who is his sidekick, he kind of chimes in and he says, yeah, even if a fox climbed up, what they were building, it would tear down his walls. He's saying it's incompetent, that it won't last. It's not strong enough. They call them weak Foolish and incompetent. Every time I read about Sanballat and Tobiah, Sanballat seems to be really the leader of the opposition. Tobiah seems to be like the little henchman. You know what I mean? Um, and the first thing I pictured was Sanballat is Scut Farkas. If you've ever seen a Christmas story, Sanballat is Scut Farkas and Tobiah is Grover Dill. You know what I'm talking about? Grover Dill was the one that was always next to Scott Farkas when they would bully the kids. He's the one in the, in the brown leather jacket and the little Kangle hat. And he was, you know, he, he looked like uh, the lead singer for ACDC. And he, he was always running around with Scott Farkas and, and just like echoing everything he said. Like Tobiah is like that guy for Sanballat. And every time, this is just me, but every time I read Tobiah opened his mouth and tried to ride the coattails of Sanballat. I'm like, oh, just shut up. Just shut up, Tobiah. Nobody cares about what you say. But they were characterizing God's people as weak, foolish, and incompetent. And when you characterize God's people that way, what they were really doing was characterizing God that way. God is weak. He's foolish. He's incompetent. And so then in verse 4, we see Nehemiah's response so look at verse 4 he responds to the ridicule this way listen our God for we are despised make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to the land of captivity do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders so we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. 
Nehemiah's first response in verse 4 is what? He prayed. We see this over and over in Nehemiah's leadership and his character. When he comes against something, the first thing he does is pray. It's, it's his first reaction. What is our first response when people ridicule us? What is our first reaction when people say insulting things about who we are? Is it to pray? Probably not. It's probably to retaliate. Say hurtful, ridiculing things back to them. Maybe punch them in the face. You know, these are the kind of things that tend to come out of us. But Nehemiah's first response was prayer. And I want you to notice the nature of his prayer. Because even if we find ourselves praying for our enemies, how do we pray for our enemies? Honestly, we pray hellfire damnation to rain down on them. And for, for, their, for, for everything, for their car to, to break down, for their, you know, everything to have, you know, all of these horrible things. Like God just... Just make all these bad things happen to them because they've hurt me. They've made me mad. And that's not right either. And that's not what we see Nehemiah doing. The focus of Nehemiah's prayer was God's justice, not his own gratification. And when you read what he says to the Lord, it's, it, it, it's a prayer that says, God, I trust your righteous judgment because your judgments are always righteous. Mine are not are they? My judgment is not always righteous when it comes to what should happen to someone as a consequence for what they do. You know why? Because I'm selfish. Because I want things to happen to them based on how I feel, how they've hurt me. And so I try to tell God, this is what you should do because this is what will make me feel better. That's not what Nehemiah prays. He prays uh, he, he talks about things like judgment over sin and he knows that that's up to God. And he says, don't let them escape your judgment, but the judgment is yours. It's not mine. And it's just this spiritually mature prayer that, that elevates the justice of God over his own selfish desires. So his first response was to pray. His second response was in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall. He prayed, and then he got back to work. He didn't stop. He didn't, like, panic. He didn't stop everything and say, whoa, you guys, hold on a minute. People are saying things. People are making fun of us. They're calling us stupid. We don't want them to think we're stupid, so let's stop. Let's stop for a minute. We got to do something to prove to them that they're wrong. We've got to change our plan. Nehemiah didn't do any of that. He prayed, he handed the ridicule over to the Lord, and then he continued the task that he knew God had called him to. He didn't let the distraction become a distraction. He gave it to God. He trusted God to be the righteous judge to deal with them however he needed to. And then he says, I'm, I'm going to go back to doing what God called me to do. It's as if he says, God's already done too much for us to stop now. He's seen God do amazing miracle after miracle in even opening the door for him to return to Jerusalem and start this project. And so it's obvious that this is God's will, so he doesn't let people's ridicule distract him from it. 
But it says at the end of verse 6, during the ridicule, they continued to work for or because the people had the will to keep working. Where does that come from? Where does the will to keep working come from? Do you ever have to ask yourself that? Here's where it comes from. When God gives direction, he'll also give desire. You feel called to something and you, and you try to do it and it gets really hard and you wonder, why do I keep doing this? But if God's called you to something and he's given you a direction, even in those lowest moments, there's something inside of you that can't let you stop what you're doing. And as crazy as it sounds to everybody else, you don't stop because you don't want to stop. And it's because of Psalm 37, 4. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. I remember a time in my life where I thought I knew what that verse meant and I had no idea what it meant. I thought in my youth and in my ignorance that that meant that if I keep Christ the center of my life and I do everything I can to please him and be obedient to him, that when I come up with a list of things that I want and give it to him, he will give it to me. And he'll give me my heart's desires. Whatever my heart desires, God, I've been faithful. I've been doing what you want me to do. So I deserve this, right? You, you're, you said you would give me what I want. And that is completely not what that means. What I found out it meant after 15, 16 years of youth ministry and through all of that, folks, Alan will tell you really quick, there are days in student ministry, there are days in pastoring that you just look up and go, what in the world am I doing? Does this even matter to anybody? And, and if it's all up to you, you would quit. And you say, well, how does somebody persevere through that for however many years? How does a pastor pastor and stay in ministry, in, in, especially in times like this, for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years? Because they don't want to stop, that's why. Logically, they may think, man, I, I feel like stopping. But there's something that drives them. They don't want to stop. You know where that desire comes from? It comes from the Lord. And the reason you don't want to stop is because you didn't come up with that desire on your own. God put it there. That's what verse 4 means. Take Delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. That means not that he will grant your wish list. But it means that the desires that you find yourself having will be put there by him because he is your delight. So why was it in this case in the midst of this horrible um, just onslaught of ridicule? Did the people still have a will to keep working? It's because Nehemiah was focusing them to have their delight in the Lord. And God had put a desire in the people to keep working, even when it would have been really easy for them to quit. And also in thinking about this concept, what about the times when we do want to quit? You know, our desires will tell us a lot about our own heart. And if my desire in a situation like this if my desire for people not to ridicule me will stop me from what I think God has called me to do, 
then maybe my mission really isn't what God has called me to do. Maybe my mission is to please other people. That's when you quit. That's when you quit, when, you've, when you make the approval of other people, when you place that above the desire that God has put in you to accomplish what he's called you to do. So when I find myself thinking, I want to quit, I have to reevaluate and say, well, what is my mission? In this case, is my mission to keep people from talking bad about me? Well, I can accomplish that by just stopping making them happy. But if that's not my mission, what is? What God's put before me. The desire he's put in my heart to do this. Well, you know what? We're going to keep doing this. And we're going to let him deal with the ridicule. So look at verse 7. So what happens is the words don't work, right? The ridicule doesn't work because verse 6 says the people had the will to keep working. So they just kept building the wall. Look in verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah... And the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls, that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. There's that word again. They're like fighting mad, ready to kill somebody. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God. There it is again. Conflict, response. We prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, Everywhere you turn, they attack us. Since the ridicule didn't work, the enemies of God used a second tactic, a second kind of opposition, and we're calling this the opposition by ruin. Ruin meaning destruction. That if they, their words didn't work, they tried to discourage the people so that they would stop on their own, but when discouragement didn't work and they didn't stop on their own, These guys realized we have to do something to make them stop. So we have to come against them physically. So they planned a violent plan to physically stop the wall from being rebuilt by threatening the people. But see, they had to be strategic because these were the leaders of the peoples that were all around Jerusalem. All of them were under the jurisdiction of King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah had the approval and the blessing of King Artaxerxes. So Sanballat and all of his guys knew that if they just mounted an army and went into Jerusalem to stop the people that way, that they would be under the the ridicule of the king, that the king, they would have to answer to him for going against what he said. So they needed a plan. They needed to do something under the table. They had to be sneaky about it. So it says they all got together and they strategized. And all of these leaders, if you, if you look at, at the geography of where they came from, they were from every surrounding area around Jerusalem. Sanballat and Tobiah were rulers in Samaria. That was to the north. The Arabs were to the south. The Amorites were to the east. 
and the Ashdodites were to the west. This was literally all the way around, enemies on every side, circling the wagons, coming together, figuring out how we can stop the people from rebuilding this wall. And so most historians think that what happened was they were planning a propaganda to try to do one of two things. They couldn't come against them with an army, but they could infiltrate the city. And they could plant their people within the city to stir up anger, to stir up dissension among the people, and cause a revolt where they started killing one another. If we can cause such a stir and we can, can threaten them to the point where they're, they become so afraid and we provoke them to violence, they'll kill and stop one another and we can have our hands clean. Either that or they were going to use a propaganda to incite revolt of all the people around them that the people would move in and stop the Jews from rebuilding this wall. It was a conspiracy that they tried to launch. And folks, that's what I've said before. Satan will do that to a body of believers. He will do that to a church. He will put his people inside the walls of the city and they will stir up anger and dissension and disunity and make people mad at each other and destroy from the inside out. So this is what begins to happen. And so Nehemiah responds again. What does it say that they did? They prayed. So he prays again, but he, just, he doesn't just pray, does he? He prays and he posts guards to watch. Like this is, this is an example of what we talked about at the very beginning. We can do everything that we can do, but we have to trust God to do what only he can do. And here again is a picture of both of those things happening. Nehemiah prays before the Lord. The people says, God, you have to deliver us. You have to protect us from our enemies. But while we're trusting you to protect us from our enemies, we're going to get our swords and our weapons together and we're going to get ourselves ready to fight if we have to. We're going to do all we can do and we're going to trust you to do what only you can do. So the people start to see this. They start to hear the rumors about the violence that their enemies are planning. They're seeing these guards stationed everywhere, and that creates fear in the people. And so fear leads to discouragement. And that's what we see in verses 10, 11, and 12, um, an expression of the discouragement that the people were feeling. They were threatened by violence from the outside coming in. And at this point... It hadn't happened yet, but it was just the rumor of violence that put fear in the people. And it weighed heavy on them. And we know what that's like. Those of us that lived through 9-11 and saw that happen, we, under, you, we understand what that feels like. There was, a, there was this looming fear over people for a long time because they were afraid that we don't know when the next thing is going to happen. And they had seen the destruction. Some of the people in the city likely had been old enough to maybe remember the exile that was that many years ago. Or they had heard stories of it and they remembered when God's enemies came in and destroyed the city. And they thought, what if that happens again? And so they were afraid, they were physically fatigued, and they got overwhelmed from the inside. Tell me if this is true about you, because I, because I think it's true of everybody to some extent. 
You know when life just seems to be going great, everything's just the way you like it, right? And then one bad thing goes wrong, and it affects your thinking to where it's not just that one bad thing that's wrong in your life. All of a sudden, there's four or five bad things that are wrong in your life because none of those circumstances have changed, really. But that one thing that kind of went and fell off a cliff made everything else seem so much bigger and so much more ominous and so much heavier. And that's what's happening. Now this threat of violence is coming in. So now they're realizing how tired they are. We're exhausted. This wall, well, like we've been working and we're seeing some progress, but there is still so much left to do. We are tired. We are overwhelmed at what's before us. They were, they were frustrated because of the material they had. This was not like they weren't building a wall out of big square cement blocks that they went to Home Depot and bought and they were stacking those things up with mortar. And, they, were, they were trying to put back together something that had been broken apart and destroyed. So they're literally finding pieces of wall here and there, rocks that have been laying there for almost a hundred years, and they're trying to dig them up and figure out how can we piece these back together and put it up so it'll be strong enough to hold. Every every rock a different shape. Nothing nothing fits together the way it's supposed to. And that's a tedious task. And so all of these things Because of this threat and this fear of attack, all of this stuff just becomes even more overwhelming. And that's what they say. How can we ever, we will never get this done. And we're afraid. So Nehemiah, in verse 13, he sees the state of things, and this is what he does. Verse 13, so I stationed people behind the lowest section of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and boast. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. So Nehemiah sees the state of the people and he stops the work momentarily. He stops And he says, everybody stop, and he gathers them together, and he positions armed families around the lowest parts of the wall. He means the the parts that would be easiest for somebody to come over, and he equips them so that they're, they're ready to fight. They're trusting God for protection, but at the same time, they're getting ready to fight if they have to fight. He wants to present a visual to anybody who would come against them that any of these vulnerable areas, when they come up to it, we're not going to just let you walk in here and take us over. We're going to fight for what God has given us. And he says to the people, don't be afraid of them. Well, why shouldn't we be afraid? There's good reason for us to be afraid, Nehemiah. Why are you telling us not to be afraid? How do we do that? And he tells them to remember. To remember and fight. This isn't a picture of, of God's people just praying, trusting the Lord, and then just sitting down and doing nothing. If we believe that God has called us to something, and we know that opposition is inevitable, I believe that God calls us 
to get equipped and get ready to fight it when it comes. Do, do we win victory because of the Lord? Absolutely. If we go fighting it by ourselves, are we going to win? Heck no, we're not. We're going we're gonna to be defeated. But does he want us to just sit around and wait on the enemy to show up and do nothing? I don't think so. Nehemiah says, remember the Lord and fight for what he's given you. Whatever we're trying to rebuild, if, if it's your personal devotion to Christ that, that you feel like God's calling you to rebuild, opposition's going to come against you. You've got to know how to fight it. You need some weapons. You need that armor of God that Scripture talks about. We, you need, God has given you weapons. He's given you defense. You've got to use it. You've got to put it on. It might be our family that we're trying to rebuild. Let me tell you, opposition is coming. It's already coming. It's going to keep coming for your family. You've got to fight for your family with, the, with what God has given you to fight with. And if God is doing something special in this church, which I completely believe he is, and if he's leading us towards something that's God-sized, then there's going to be opposition. And for us to just sit around and not get ready for it is foolish. If we know opposition's coming, let's get ready to fight if we have to. But fight it not in our strength and not with our little measly, fragile weapons and tools that we try to put together because none of that stuff will work. We fight under his leadership in his power with the tools that he gives us. When we're discouraged, when we're in a state like this and we feel opposition coming, we should remember as well. Just like Nehemiah told his people, remember the awe-inspiring Lord. Remember your God. So when we face opposition through ridicule, I mean, just get ready for it. You're doing something for God, people are going to talk. And it's not going to be nice. They're going to say bad things, ugly things. There may even be other people in God's church who will say things. Remember, I remember, we should remember Jesus, that all four Gospels record details of how Jesus was mocked by the Romans. He was mocked at his crucifixion. They basically called Jesus weak and foolish and incompetent. If you're the son of God like you say you are, just come down off the cross. Aren't you strong enough to do that? How foolish you are to call yourself the king of the Jews. That's stupid. Same stuff. Same things they said to Jesus. And if they said those kind of things to Jesus, they will say those things about you. The world will call you weak. They will call you foolish. And they will call you incompetent. But think about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is, this is a piece of God's truth that I want us to remember. If God says, Nehemiah said, remember your God. I think we remember the word of God when we face those, these times. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Listen to what Paul says to us here. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is what? Foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak 
in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. You know what? When the world calls you weak and foolish and incompetent, they are right. You are weak. You are incompetent. And you are foolish. But you know why? You're that because God says you're that. And he's chosen you because you're weak. He's chosen you because you're foolish. And he's chosen you because you are incompetent. So let them say whatever they want to say. Let them call you weak because they're right. Let them call you incompetent because they're right. But it's for a greater glory. It's for a greater purpose. God says, no, they ridicule you because you are those things. I chose you because you're those things. And you're the ones that I'm going to use. So remember that. And when people, that's the ridicule. And then when people come to ruin us and try to literally destroy our work for God. I think of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James is foolish enough to say when you have trouble, when you have trial and circumstances come against you, let it create joy. Let it make you joyful because you know that those things are coming into your life and God is using those to create and develop endurance in your faith. And here's the last big point, but I think it's really important for us to remember when we're in the face of opposition. Opposition can be a tool God uses to move his people in a direction they would never go without it. You know why God allows opposition into my life? Because he knows without it, I will sit right where I am. I won't do anything different. I won't go anywhere different. What a great God that we serve. As he calls us to a task... We face opposition from the world, but we serve a sovereign God who is sovereign over the opposition so much that he will use the opposition for building us up and pushing us toward the thing that he wants us to do. But we don't think about opposition that way. We think about opposition as something to run away from and avoid as best we can. Sometimes we need opposition. And I believe sometimes God allows opposition to remind us of our weakness and to force us to rely and trust on him with what we don't have on our own. I want to finish up with this passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I'm going to read it, but I've colored different phrases, a different color. And when I get to that part, I want you to say those words out loud because I want you to hear yourself. I want us to to see how all of these words, this passage, just I found this and I'm like, wow, this is is everything in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. So feel free to say it out loud. Verse 1, in addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored 
Time out. There's our mission. That's the task. This is our wall. That the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. That's what we are trying to do together. Just as it was with you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. For not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. There's confidence in his protection for him to do what only he can do. Verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. <laughs> he says in verse 4 that you, would, that you are doing and will continue to do. Nehemiah said opposition comes, but we're not going to stop. Paul says we pray that you are doing and that you will continue to do it. Because God will deliver you from wicked and evil people. And you will develop endurance because of the opposition that comes. Opposition wants to stop us from getting it done, but opposition in the hands of God can actually equip us and help us get it done.